Hi, I'm Chesney McKinley-Severance in Aarhus, Denmark. And I'm Weldon Gorey in Nice-sur-Seine, France. And you're listening to... American on the Outside. Today we're going to be talking about Independence Day, July 4th, what it means overseas, and how expats celebrate it. So, Chesney, what are y'all doing? Well, this year, my three little ones will be on their very first away trip to Danish Scouts summer camp for a whole week to an island in the middle of the Baltic Sea. And so we will be empty nesters for the first time ever. Well, for the first time in 11 years anyway. So we will be headed to Copenhagen the 4th of July and a few days after that to celebrate with some American friends there. What about you guys, Weldon? What will you be doing? Well, we are going to Barcelona now that Europe is sort of reopened for both the 4th and the 6th is our anniversary and the 7th is my birthday. So we'll do sort of an extended weekend down there and eat every form of seafood known to man. Lots and lots of sangria. We hope so. <laughs> well, I can tell you that Barcelona is amazing and you guys will absolutely love it. It's a beautiful town and the food is just beyond. It's so, <laughs> so good. But It does strike me, I don't think we'll be doing anything particularly to mark Independence Day, unless the sangria is red, white, and blue. There'll probably be strawberries and blueberries and (laughs) citrus fruits involved. You could find sparklers and have a little pyrotechnic display. Yeah, I'm sure you could find an American community on the 4th and potentially crash their picnic. (laughs) So my wife is a diplomat, so we're normally at an embassy somewhere on Mm. the 4th, and embassy sort of make a point of celebrating, we call it National Day. Every country has a National Day. I think the UK is the monarch's birthday, and and that's always a big, the embassy community event. People jockey to get invites to the various embassies for their days, because there's always food and alcohol and activities when you get to meet other diplomats. Sure. But we're not doing it this year because of the pandemic. So at the embassy events, other embassies get invited. It's it's whoever, I mean, a whole lot of people get invited. It's the local, the important thing is that the, the host country has people invited. So like maybe the mayor of Paris and, mm. you know, some people in French government. And in, in Paris especially is famous for its Independence Day embassy parties because they have, you know, r- really... Really good restaurants provide the the finger foods, like Michelin-starred chefs, you know, providing the mini crab cakes. Denmark's uh, U.S. Embassy held its 4th of July celebration on June 24th, Hmm. Uh, so a little bit early, but I think it also coincided with a big Danish holiday, a midsummer holiday, Uh. so... I think that that was a big reason why. I know in Paris, sometimes you have to time it to not run into the build up to Bastille Day. Yeah, I bet that is tricky because um, it's the 14th of July, right, correct? Right, right. Um, and so, you, you know, you obviously you want people to be free for your party because it's kind of a chance to showcase America and American stuff. Sure. Um, right, of course. And in some countries in India, you're usually in the middle of the monsoon. Uh, and it's a thousand degrees in July. Uh, and so some posts, depending on weather and climate, 
we'll do it in December or January, like when the weather's nice and when people attend outdoor parties. Well, something is very interesting about Denmark is that there's actually a big uh, American Independence Day festival here, and it's billed as the largest Independence Day celebration outside of the United States. Oh, wow. Why, why is it's, that? Uh, it's It's been going on since like 1912. It's called the Rebuild Festival. Hmm. Um, and it, it's hosted by the Danish American Rebuild Society. And they have guest speakers. Usually it's an ambassador, but they can also get people over from the U.S. to do something. And yeah. Oh, wow. it, it, Are there fireworks? Uh, I don't know. I've never been because last year they didn't have it. Right. (laughs) It's in the middle of Denmark and we don't have a car. Ah. We rely a lot on public transportation and bicycles to get around. It's a choice that we've made. Mm -hmm. But when you want to get out into the countryside, it does present a bit of a challenge for the more far flung places that don't necessarily have, you know, a train station or a direct connection or it takes the train plus a bus plus then a taxi um, yeah <laughs> yeah or, but so we haven't actually been yet maybe next year we'll rent a car and go out there and it, it's out and, it's out in the country not like in copenhagen or something no it's it's out on in um rebuild which is i probably said that wrong my apologies danish people it's in a national park ah. in north north Jutland or oh on the yeah. on the peninsula not, not on the peninsula yeah, okay. yeah yeah so I always found that really interesting that like there's this big Independence Day celebration that happens in Denmark so yeah <laughs> no it's I mean it, it is it's interesting what what things I think of as very American happen overseas too in Mumbai there's a fairly large Martin Luther King Day. Mm. Oh, really? Because he actually, he went to, he and his wife went to then Bombay shortly before he was killed. And he talked about the influence of Gandhi on his right. Life. I, but there's a there's a Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard in, in Mumbai. I, I recently learned about his visit to India not too terribly long ago. So yeah, I for, I'd forgotten about that. But yes, <laughs> that's so interesting. Well, let me ask you, Weldon. We talked about what you're going to do. What are some of your memories from the 4th of July? Like, what did you do growing up in the U.S. for the 4th? Yeah, I was I was thinking about that today. I, I'll preface it by saying one time in high school, I had to go to the city council meeting as mm-hmm. part of my, I don't remember if it was for a class or for Boy Scouts or what, but I had to take notes at a city council meeting and they were discussing the annual budget that year. Mm-hmm. And Starkville's municipal budget at the time was nearly a third of it was for July Fourth. Really? Yeah. Both for the fire. Yeah, <laughs> for the fireworks. Because remember the the school district budget was separate, but it, like mm-hmm. the city's sort of non educational spending. Uh, the fireworks are expensive, and every firefighter and police officer gets overtime, and so it, it was just this huge part of the city budget and i remember thinking like that's crazy uh, crazy but it, it shows like that's something we really care about we'd go to the park and get a lay out a blanket and get covered in ticks and mosquito bites. mosquito bites and eat way too much sugary candy that was for sale at the little concession stand and watch the fireworks and i th- i always just really loved that as a kid we 
never went to the firework displays growing up. What we did was that we went and would spend part of the week before the 4th of July on this island in the middle of the Mississippi River called Davis Island. I know Davis Island. Yeah, it's a former plantation island, unfortunately, so it has a lot of history. But we would hunt and fish and ride four-wheelers and Mm -hmm. just be outside and do things like that. But it's a beautiful island, again, very heavy with history. And then we would head over to a lake called Lake St. John, and we had friends who had houses and things like that on the lake, and we would just swim and have like crawfish boils and barbecues, and they would have a flotilla, and there would be (laughs) music, and there would be fireworks at the end of that. Somebody would go out on a boat and launch bottle rockets and things, and and that would be what we would do. And it was get way too sunburned, because back then, you know, when you're 10 and 12, you you know, like... And one sunscreen. Right. Don't put right. that stuff on me. And but then you you would regret it the next yeah. day. In the middle of the night, you'd regret it because wow. I I liked getting sunburned because it was the one thing that would get my frugal parents to turn on the air conditioner. Oh, really? And so I would sit in front of the air conditioner with aloe vera slathered on me, like cooling my shoulders that were, you know, the color of a fire truck. The other the other aspect of July 4th from my childhood that I remember is my that's right before my birthday which is the 7th Mm, right and so I rarely had birthday parties with kids attending because everyone was on vacation same I'm I'm an August baby so yeah and I we might sometimes we would rent out the mini golf place for like Mm -hmm. the three kids who were going to show up and we'd often do it like on the 4th and so I would have the red white and blue cake or uh, yeah (laughs) So forever tied to the 4th of July by your birthday. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a celebratory time for me, I guess. The, the, yeah. Uh, July the 4th and then New Year's Day are my two favorite holidays or New Year's Eve. Mm. Yeah. And I think Fireworks there's... Fireworks involved in Yeah, there, there's something similar. It's just really festive and colorful, loud, the way I think holidays should be. Do you find that as we get older and we learn more about American history, that holidays like the 4th of July and Thanksgiving become more problematic as as we get older and and contemplate more. I'm sure. I think this year is a great example in that the US has just recognized Juneteenth. Mm, uh, right. like you know last week. I know Lin-Manuel Miranda said it like the America as this unfinished symphony. Obama would talk that way a lot too. It's a country with a lot of promise that that made some very bold promises promises that no other country has even tried to make and has not fulfilled them yet. The mix of positive and negative, I think, is easier. Understanding that is forced on you as you get older and and you're not, you don't have so much of a sense when you're a child of how things can be a mixture of bad and good, right? (laughs) Right. We're taught, at least our generation was taught, you know, America, yay, wow, Mm -hmm. All of the red, white, and blue is amazing all the time. And then as you get older and you learn more and you are exposed to more people who have their own experiences that are outside of your experiences, you realize that, as you say, America is a land of unfulfilled promises. And I have been contemplating spending the time between Juneteenth and the 4th of July in this time of contemplation about... Sort of a, about, a national Lent, almost. 
Yeah, sort of. Like yeah. where you where you spend the time really contemplating where we where we come from and the path that we want to be on to achieve achieve the goals that we aspire to or that we were told to aspire to. So, yeah, I've I've been thinking a lot about that this these last few days especially and going into the 4th of July weekend. I I will continue to think about it and then yeah. then of course I'll be thinking about it after that too because you don't just do it once a year. Right. You do it consistently and make it a part of your make it a part of your life. I think people and like literally people our age in just a couple of years in either direction we were the end of history generation, right? Like like mm-hmm. I certainly I learned that America did bad things when I was growing up. Like you know, we, uh, the text history textbooks were very upfront that like what happened to the Native Americans were bad was bad. Mm-hmm. Slavery was bad. Uh, but it was presented in what I now know is called like a Whig historical, you know, oh, we did this bad thing and we fixed it. And then we did this yes. new, and, and, and America has been progressing constantly, is is this idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as I got older, as I learned more, as I read more, it's much more complicated than that. It's It's been a sort of a pendulum of justice that's gone back and forth. And right. it's, had, it's had better times and worse times. And it's interesting to compare that to, say, Bastille Day in France, where it's almost this sense of like it feels a lot more static to me. This idea that even though France has had what well, this is this is its fourth republic, I think, since the the revolution, but there's this idea that like France found liberté, égalité, fraternité, and that's what it does. Bastide here is is much more militaristic mm. than I, I'm used to, even growing up in in the South in the U.S. where. There, mm. There's a lot of military displays on Independence Day. Uh, now, maybe it's just that I live right in the extension of the Champs-Élysées, when it extends into the suburb. And every one of every model of plane in the French Air Force flies directly over my apartment in this sort of air parade they do. Right. And the U.S. Air Force couldn't do that because there's too many planes. But it's it's very much, I, I think planes flying over the U.S. Capitol would be... Americans would have a bit of a problem with that, I, I think. Maybe not. Yeah, I think I think that's right. My understanding is that we are reluctant to put that sort of display. We are a citizen army, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we don't have a st- constitutionally standing army of right. our in, in, armed in, services. In theory, the army only lasts two years and gets re reconstituted right after right yeah right after the two years expires so it's not technically a standing army although in practice it obviously is that's always that's the part of that's the part of originalism that always (laughs) right (laughs) just makes me laugh and cry at the same time especially when the founders like when you read their writings the formation of a standing army was their was their biggest fear more than taxes more, more than anything else it was they didn't want the U.S. to have a standing military. They were even sketchy about a navy. They wanted contractors to do it. But um, yeah, right. I have not yet heard an, an alleged originalist call for the disbandment of the army. So, <laughs> right. I don't know if you saw General Miley. And oh, Miley, right. And and the officer Pester- corps is too too woke now. People are saying. Right. I think he came out strongly for critical race theory. Oh. And learning about things. There's a clip that's been floating around social media in the last couple of days. I think I think it was General Miley. 
Yeah, ch- uh, chair- well, he, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, right? Yes, yeah. where he's like, he's, we should learn about these things and... And, and and the U.S. military, to its credit, has been very strong on climate change too. Like the Pentagon mm-hmm. has recognized well, it as a as an existential threat for a, a security a threat. Now. Yeah. So, with the generals coming out strongly for history and science, mm-hmm. we're there. You're starting to see some calls for defunding the military. I've heard some like rumblings, like, "Well, maybe we just won't give you any money anymore." I'm like. What? Uh, I don't think that you hurt my feelings (laughs) if you cut the budget. Right, right. I mean... Uh, The world turns upside down every generation or so, right? So strange. I think there's... It may be easier to see overseas than, than it is in the States, but there's an author, Chris Ladd, I think he writes for Forbes, Mm. and he says, he makes this point that in 1988, Elizabeth Warren... And Rick Perry, Texas governor for a while, were both campaigning in Texas for the presidential election or primaries in 1988. But Rick Perry was stumping for Al Gore and Elizabeth Warren was stumping for George H.W. Bush. And as he points out, neither of them have really changed their views over the past 30 years, but the political landscape has just completely melted and recongealed beneath them such that now Rick Perry is a Republican and and Elizabeth Warren is not just a Democrat, but one of the sort of quote unquote extreme or strident, you know, progressive Democrats. Right. uh, Holding, holding views that put them in the opposite party a generation ago, you know? Right. I have a lot of, of questions about like, I think people should be able to grow and change and develop ideas. I don't think that somebody who had, an idea 30 years ago should be held to that idea forever. And I feel like for a lot of politicians specifically, but people in the public domain Mm -hmm. in general, like that's not allowed. Like you had had an idea that was widely accepted in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And then today it's not widely accepted. In fact, it's pretty much denounced wholeheartedly (laughs) by a, vast majority of people and you've come along with that but then somebody digs up something that you oh sure said or did like well i mean in the 1990s and you're like barack "Ah." obama in 2012 ran against marriage equality like that was part of his platform so when marriage equality happened nationally in the u.s i I was we were both overseas i guess i was in india yes Yeah. yeah and that People sometimes think of the U.S. as like stodgy and conservative, and and yet the U.S. beat a whole lot of countries that consider themselves very progressive to a national marriage equality sort of law. And I think that surprised a lot of people overseas, and I think all the more so if you've been living in that society where it's becoming gradually more and more acceptable— it's hard to see. It's hard to see that change happen until it's like the frog in the boiling water, right? To go very quickly from the liberal candidate for president will not support gay marriage to it's almost socially unacceptable in a lot of mm. circles now to not support a gay marriage. And that you, you don't see that when the change is happening all around you until you get a sudden event like the Supreme Court decision or something. I think that's true for both good and bad things sure i think that that's what the scary thing about the last couple of years with 
the rise of the extreme right, not mm-hmm. just in the U.S., but around the world. Like, yeah. You, you don't think it's that bad or it or it's. Because yesterday is not that much different from, or today is not that much different from yesterday, even if it's getting worse and worse, you know? Right. And until something crazy happens, like (laughs) a bunch of people try to storm the Capitol. Capitol. Um, And and then it goes both ways. Good things happen the same way. Like people get to know more and more. LGBTQ plus couples mm. and they're like my best friend or it's my cousin or it's you know the guy mm-hmm. I grew up with down the street and we played together and we're we yeah we're at prom together and we you know we're in a group show or played sports or whatever you did and you're like they're people they're just people they're the same person that they were before they came out yeah and they deserve happiness and they deserve to be able to, everyone deserves happiness. Everyone deserves to be able to love who they want to love, how they want to love them. And in, in consenting relationships all around, like that doesn't well, sound mind blowing now, but 20, 30 years ago, I guess. That, that was an extreme position. It's amazing how long the backlash can last. Like it was. Yeah, I'm in an uh, interracial marriage, and it was only, mm. I believe it was only in the late 1990s that a majority of Americans, when polled, said they thought interracial marriages should be allowed. Right. Even though Loving versus Virginia was, I, I don't know, 60, I should know that, 67, 68. Yeah. But it took another three decades, another generation for the public view to catch up with that, you know, and and I imagine we're going to be still fighting the the tail end of marriage equality resistance for probably just as long, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Again, people should be able to love who (laughs) they want to love. It's all good. We're all people. For more American on the Outside, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and listen and subscribe at www.amontheout.com. Thanks for listening.